Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Amanda Hollis-Brusky and Dr. Joshua C. Wilson to discuss their new book, Separate but Faithful, The Christian Rights Radical Struggle to Transform Law and Legal Culture, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. The book contributes to our general understanding of social movements, legal mobilization, and constitutional development, but also the specifics of how the Christian conservative legal movement has attempted to transform American law from secular and liberal to Christian and natural by creating separate law schools and legal institutions that teach from a Christian worldview. The book uses a modified version of support structure theory and extensive data collected by the authors to interrogate why the new Christian right rejected the lower cost, lower risk infiltration approach to support structure building in favor of a mix of parallel alternative and supplemental approaches. Separate but Faithful evaluates whether activists pushing for lawyers and judges with a Christian worldview have been able to achieve their goals and transform American legal culture. Book is part of Oxford's studies in post-war American political development and I'm delighted to invite Amanda Hollis-Brusky, an associate professor of politics at Pomona College, and Dr. Josh C. Wilson, professor of political science at the University of Denver, to the New Books Network. Welcome, Amanda and Josh. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Susan. Before we unpack this remarkable analysis of how institutional networks bolster social movements, let, let me ask you both a bit about how your earlier scholarship connects to this project and how a scholar of law and courts and a scholar of American abortion politics came to collaborate. Uh, Amanda, how did your first book, Ideas with Consequences, The Federalist Society and the Conservative Counter-Revolution, lead you to look at conservative Christian legal movements? And, and how did you come to collaborate with Josh? Well, we talk a little bit about the origin story of this project in, in the uh, preface to the book, but I was just wrapping up my first book on the Federal Society, Ideas with Consequences, and uh, Josh was actually, had just wrapped up his first book, Street Politics of Abortion, and Josh had noticed in the context of his research on abortion politics, uh, the names of these relatively new Uh, Christian right law schools, Regent Law School, Liberty Law School, Ave Maria School of Law. They kept coming up again and again with the cast of characters he was interviewing um, and studying in his book on the street politics of abortion. And so he mentioned this to Bob Kagan, who was his advisor at Berkeley and also happened to be my advisor at Berkeley. And Bob said, you know, you really should talk to Amanda Hollis-Bresky, one of my other students. She is doing this fascinating work on the Federal Society. It might help you think through how to understand these new Christian right law schools. And so Josh um, reached out to me and we met for coffee 
at the American Political Science Association, and I think it was 2011, talked to me a little bit about these law schools. I was immediately fascinated uh, to learn about them. And then we agreed to collaborate on an article. And that article looked at reframing law as a vocation or a calling within uh, Christian circles. We collaborated on that project that led to more questions, which led to another article, which led to another article. And before we realized it, we had unwittingly agreed to collaborate uh, on a book project. And that was, uh, as I said, about nine years ago. Um, and so really it was our, our advisor, Bob Kagan, who recognized the synergies between what Josh was looking at and what I was looking at the time that brought us together and brought us to this project. Oh, that's such a nice APSA and uh, dissertation advisor story. Um, Josh, as Amanda already mentioned, uh, your two earlier books centered on abortion politics, The Street Politics of Abortion, Speech, Violence, and America's Cultures Wars, which came out from Stanford in 2013. I'm oh, sorry, 20, yeah, 2013. And uh, The New States of Abortion Politics uh, came out from Stanford in 2016. So, Abortion's clearly part of the Christian legal movement, but tell me a little bit more about the lines of continuity. Um, and, and also, you know, how did you find this kind of collaboration? How did it work with regards to both the substantive interests that you shared with Amanda and also the methodologies that you had previously employed? Sure. Um, so as Amanda said, uh, it was through the work on these abortion politics uh, books that I really got exposed to the world of conservative Christian lawyering. And then through those interviews, uh, you know, learning more about the, the different lawyers and then meeting with some of them and talking with them, it's, it's how I came across uh, the American Center for Law and Justice, which is um, essentially Pat Robertson's answer to the ACLU um, and Jay Seculo, who was uh, heading the ACLJ. And Jay Seculo, and uh, the ACLJ had involvement with various uh, major anti anti-abortion uh, regulation cases, and so that's that was kind of the connection there. And then meeting some of the lawyers uh, that worked on those cases, and then the real pivot to this book, uh, and what kind of set things in my head at least, was learning that the original offices for the ACLJ were housed in the same building as Regent University's law school. So that's the law school created by Pat Robertson. And it kind of immediately clicked in my head of, oh, this is, this is kind of a, a literal presentation of the metaphor of the cream of the crop will, will kind of rise to the top here in the law school. So that uh, Pat Robertson had kind of thought through the idea of how you bring lawyers into a political movement. And, and so that set really early that I wanted to do something uh, related to this. And then, as, as Amanda said, uh, Bob Kagan put us in contact with one another. And I'd say Amanda and I hit it off pretty well, pretty quickly. Um, the collaboration has been a, a really a good one. Um, I think we, we complement each other pretty well. Um, we have this common shared interest in conservative politics and conservative lawyering. You know, I was coming at it from this abortion angle and kind of the Christian right angle, and she was coming at it from the Federalist Society, kind of more secular angle. So that was a nice uh, connection point. And then, you know, our kind of shared training at Berkeley gave us a lot of things in common as well. And so 
uh, this interest in, in kind of qualitative research and, and using some uh, quantitative elements as well. So kind of personality-wise, training-wise, um, and interest-wise, I think is, are all the things that came together to, to make the collaboration a, a good one. The book opens with Herbert Titus, a Harvard-educated JD, a tenured law professor converting to Christianity. And uh, he finds himself at a crossroads as he tries to reconcile his long-held professional life with his new but strongly held moral beliefs. And Titus leaves his position, as you narrate it, at the University of Oregon, and eventually is one of three full-time faculty members at the newly formed uh, Coburn School of Law at Oral Roberts University. Uh, the, the school had had issues because the American Bar Association accreditation created complications, but the ABA had actually amended its rules to allow a law school to have a religious affiliation and purpose and to adopt policies of admission and employment directly related to their affiliation and purpose. And you write that Oral Roberts Law School closed within five years, but that it set the stage for the Christian conservative legal movement, CCLM, in two ways. The resources from Oral Robert, the Oral Roberts Project went to the Christian Broadcasting Network University's new law school named Regent, uh, with Herbert Titus as the founding dean. And in addition, that amendment to the ABA standards opened the door for others to build their own, your words, distinctly Christian, biblically-oriented, religiously-controlled law schools Amanda, I, before we move into the arguments of the chapters and the structure and methodology of the book, I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining why this approach to legal education, creating a new law school, um, is so interesting given the context of what other conservative Christians were thinking about law and approaches they were taking at that time, just, just to kind of situate it for us. Sure. I mean, opening a new law school is always a, a risky endeavor. Law schools are extraordinarily costly institutions. Um, the legal profession is a profession that is in many ways obsessed with, with pedigree, with reputation. Um, a lot of the rankings, uh, U.S. World and News Report rankings, are based on reputation, alumni, um, perceptions of prestige. And when you found a new law school, you really are starting from scratch. Um, and it's a, it's a risky business because you have to convince faculty to come teach at your new law school, um, which may or may not be accredited by the American Bar Association at that point. Um, so you have to bring them in with the promise that your school will be accredited. And then you have to recruit students to a school that has not produced um, notable alumni, um, that hasn't shown that it can produce uh, lawyers that will pass the bar exam to become licensed attorneys. And so uh, it, it's an uphill battle for any upstart law school, any new law school. Um, the battle for these particular schools was compounded by the fact that they're trying to do something radical. Um, we, we say in the book, their mission is in and of itself transformative, that they're offering a distinct and unique brand of legal education from a biblical or Christian perspective, where you're bringing the Bible into the classroom, 
and that you're integrating the practice and teaching of law with Christian principles and biblical principles. Um, and, and so it's, it's risky in the sense that it's a huge financial investment and that you're unproven and unaccredited, but it's risky in the second sense because you're trying to do something that is uh, transformative, uh, something new, something different. And so it was not always guaranteed that these law schools would be able to attract faculty and students um, uh, with, without having shown that they could actually produce um, lawyers, licensed attorneys, and uh, position their graduates in, in, in the legal, legal market. Um, so uh, it, there were other options available, as you mentioned. One would have been to, um, for these Christian right patrons to look at existing law schools and try to infiltrate them, try to place sympathetic faculty, faculty like Herb Titus, onto their um, faculties and then try to change the nature of legal education from the inside out. Uh, and another option is the option that I look at in the in Ideas with Consequences, which is to start something like the Federalist Society, to start student chapters in law schools that would be dedicated to this transformative mission, but that would be operating within and piggybacking on existing law schools. And as we write in the book, the patrons of the Christian right rejected the infiltration approach and largely pursued this riskier, build-your-own-institutions, parallel alternative approach. So to also just re- to tag on to that, to kind of respond to what's going on in the rest of kind of the, the Christian legal movement at this time, um, I would say that it's, it's an important element of the story is to think about the creation of these law schools uh, within the context of the creation of the Christian right and within the context of the creation of the Christian conservative legal movement. And then kind of also around there is just the creation of uh, the conservative legal movement as a whole. And so Christian conservatives in terms of legal organizing really lagged behind their secular counterparts. And so at the same time that we're talking about the creation of these law schools in the early days, you know, if you look at the, the national landscape of Christian conservative lawyering, you see a lot of kind of isolated legal practice of individual lawyers uh, pursuing things around the country outside of D.C. predominantly. And you see, a f- you know, a collection of a few smaller, under-resourced uh, public interest legal organizations that are serving kind of Christian conservative ends. And so the creation of these law schools is concurrent with kind of, as I said before, the creation of the Christian right and the creation of the Christian conservative legal movement as a whole. And so it's just part of this story of organizing resources and then building institutions. No, and I, and the, the book is, well, first of all, I should say, the book is terrific. Um, it's beautifully written. It's really fun to read. And, um, and though I am familiar, I pass Regent University all the time. My mother lives down there. And I read about many of these institutions you're talking about. I really didn't know them in the context that you explain it in the book. And I certainly didn't understand uh, what their approach was and what the alternatives were. So it's a, it's a terrific, it's a terrific book. I don't want to say it's a page turner in the, like, it's a mystery or anything like that, but there is that element as to why they're doing what they're doing, and it's very, very compelling narrative. Um, the, the book depends 
on some really established literatures in political science, like support structure theory. But but your research is 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 leading you to revise and restate uh, support structure theory in a very particular way. And you've also done this very extensive research on four different institutions. Some of them mentioned Regent University Law School, Liberty University Law School. We haven't mentioned Ave Maria School of Law, and we've referred to the Blackstone Legal Fellowships. You, you both wrote chapter one, which is called The Frankfurter Adage, or Why Legal Movements Need Support Structures. So let, let's start off with support structure theory. Um, Amanda, if you would just explain a little bit about where it comes from and uh, the four types of capital uh, that you that you talk about, um, just to get us all on the same page. And then, we, oh, and obviously, we want to talk also about the support structure pyramid, which is just terrific. Sure. Now, support structure theory, basically distilled, um, is the theory that uh, having five justices on the Supreme Court is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for revolutionary constitutional change. So when we step back and ask, how do you change the law? How do you enact sort of sweeping or revolutionary changes in legal meaning, constitutional development? Political scientists have often said, well, uh, you know, the, you just get five justices on the Supreme Court who align with your vision, and then you can do whatever you want with the law, right? This is sort of William Brennan's famous rule of five. Why is the rule of five so important? Because with five votes on the court, you can do anything. And what uh, Charles Epp wrote back in uh, 1998 in his classic work, The Rights Revolution, is that, yes, having five justices on the Supreme Court or on the high court is important, uh, but in and of itself, it doesn't result in revolutionary legal or constitutional change. And that's because the justices, in his words, can't make cases appear before themselves as if by magic, right? Courts are not self-starting institutions. They require the right cases to be brought before them, um, properly framed so that, that they have the questions they want to answer. Um, but they also, and that requires lawyers, which requires resources. Um, and, and so support structure th theory really emphasizes that. Um, you know, courts and judges are an important part um, of the equation, but they're not the only part. As Josh once put it, and I like to say as well, those are the visible parts of the glacier. Right? Those are the things that everyone pays attention to, courts and judges. But underneath the water, there's a vast <laughs> territory, um, glacial territory, and that's made up of everything else you need to get to that point, um, to get to those judges, to get the right cases in front of them. And so we use support structure theory uh, to think about the role of law schools and legal training programs in that equation of revolutionary constitutional change. And as we write in the book, and as previous scholarship has corroborated, you know, law schools are an important part of the support structure um, because as gatekeepers to the legal profession, they provide various forms of capital for movements interested in long-term changes and revolutionary changes in law and jurisprudence. So first and foremost, as we talk about in the book, they attract socialized and credential lawyers. So they provide human capital for the profession um, and also judges. They establish or provide inroads to networks for group advancement and social capital. 
They create, spread, and legitimate ideas within the legal profession, uh, within within political and wider publics. And we, we refer to this in the, in the book as intellectual capital and cultural capital. Um, so those four kinds of capital uh, are vital products of law schools. And that's why so often scholarship has pinpointed um, changes in, in law. So you can think here to the New Deal revolution in the 1930s and the birth of legal liberalism or to the rights revolution of the mid 20th century. And a subject with, a, with which I'm most familiar is the conservative counter revolution currently underway on the Supreme Court. Each of these changes, scholars have identified um, uh, how they originated with changes in law school and and legal education. And so while this scholarship really um, establishes that law schools and legal training programs are important for constitutional change, there was really this open question in the literature that Josh and I were interested in answering. And namely, are there certain kinds of support structures, right? Certain kinds of institutions for legal training and development that are better or worse or more or less effective at producing these kinds of resources for movements. Um, and so that's where we develop and think about the support structure pyramid. Um, if I had to do it over, uh, we may call it the support structure glacier, right? Because there is that highly visible part that most political scientists are really focused on, which are courts and judges, but that underneath the water, as we show, are where really uh, most of the capital needed for these long-term changes are, are originally um, produced. And just to tack on to that too, right, the, the basic idea here, right, is of, a, a res- of thinking about resources that are needed to, to execute what you want to do in the political or legal world. And so it's really support structure theory is all about this resource pipeline. And to just go back to something earlier, Right, that, that initial visual of realizing that Regent Law School, that the upper stories of the building itself housed the public interest law firm, the American Center for Law and Justice, and kind of the classwork and the, and the uh, faculty offices were in the floors below, is that really nice kind of representation of, of that pipeline and of that kind of uh, iceberg metaphor of, of how you can see these layers of resources building on one another, working towards a public interest legal organization, which of course then is going to go out into the world and litigate cases. Um, well, thanks for the iceberg, because I think that's actually that, I mean, I loved the pyramid, but the iceberg is even is even better. And, and Josh, it is amazing to think of that structurally mapping onto the architecture of a building. Um, one of my favorite podcasts is 99% Invisible, and I could see Roman Mar doing something really amazing with interviewing people to figure that all out. Uh, I know that Amanda mentioned the types of strategies that are often employed for legal change and development, but Josh, I was wondering if you could flesh them out just a little bit um, so that we go into uh, chapter two, understanding the, the three basic types of approaches that um, groups usually take. Sure. So, um, and this, this is actually, I, I also like to think about this in terms of the collaboration itself, especially since you asked that question earlier, is a lot of the, the kind of the visuals of the, of the pyramid and then thinking about the support structure strategies, you know, come out of, of uh, long discussions that Amanda and I had. And I particularly think about 
you know, one time that Amanda came out to Denver for a couple of days of in-person work and we were walking around the botanical gardens and just kind of thinking through different visual representations. And then one of the things that came out of that as well was thinking about our our case studies and realizing that there were kind of three strategies that were available to people if they want to build support structures. Right? And so one of them is what we called the infiltration strategy. And so that's where you take pre-existing institutions and you try to infiltrate them. You try to get you get access to them directly. And so the way we are thinking about this in terms of training Christian conservative lawyers is you go out, you identify friendly law schools, um, law schools that are going to provide access points for you. And you try to do things like endow uh, some professor positions, right? You try to get some faculty uh, into those law schools, and that'll give them access to future lawyers. And you can begin to, to produce um, lawyers for your movement that way. And and this is attractive because it's kind of lower cost in the grand scheme of things. But the the downside of it is you also have low control, right? You're just putting you know one, two, a few faculty into law schools, and they then have to operate within the larger context of that law school, and that can maybe diminish what you're trying to achieve. So then another strategy that's available is what we call the supplemental approach, so the supplemental strategy, and so. With that one, again, you're working with existing institutions, but instead of trying to get inside of them, you're working uh, to supplement them, right? So you're building institutions that can work alongside them. And so the the visual or the, the example that we have of this in the, the book is the Blackstone Legal Fellowship, right? So this is a, a fellowship for law students so, you know, you have students going to their own established law schools, wherever they may be, but then you bring them in for a summer into Blackstone and you train them in Christian legal jurisprudence and litigation strategies and you network them and so forth. And so the idea here is you're, you're not trying to enter various law schools, but rather you're trying to pull students from those law schools to you, and you're supplementing what they're getting at those other law schools, both in terms of training and in terms of capital and so forth. And we think about this one as a kind of a low or moderate cost, but also kind of a a low to moderate degree of control as well, because those students, you might bring them in for a summer, you might network with them, uh, and you might establish standing relationships, but they're going to return to their law schools and, you know, be faced with the, the influences that they have there. And then the third strategy we talk about is the parallel alternative strategy. And so this is the, the idea of creating wholly new institutions, right? So this is, of course, really high cost, uh, really high risk, but also comes with potentially a really high degree of control, right? Because if you have a vision, you just build the thing yourself. You're not relying on pre-existing institutions and their histories and whatever constraints they may have, um, but rather you're building the whole thing yourself. And that gives you control over policies, over faculty, over administration, over students, and so forth. So we started, and and that, of course, is we see that with uh, Liberty, Regent, and Ave Maria in the book, right? But of course, that's the least common because it is so costly to, to build something from scratch. And and I'll just add here is is one of the fascinating findings of the book is the parallel alternative strategy does afford the most control, 
but there are constraints. And, and these constraints are generated from the fact that while separate, these law schools still need to exist within um, a broader legal profession that is regulated by the American Bar Association. And so one of the things we look at in the book are the various constraints that the ABA, the American Bar Association, places on these uh, Christian worldview law schools. Um, Herb Titus talked about um, the unholy alliance that these law schools had to forge with the ABA. Uh, the ABA was seen in many ways to be the, the enemy of these law schools. And one of the primary reasons, because the ABA had become so liberal and so secular, one of the primary reasons these Christian worldview institutions existed um, was to counter the influence of the ABA. And yet, because of the way the legal profession works, they still needed to be accredited and they still needed to partner with the federal government to get financial aid, which would attract students to the law school. So one of the, one of the interesting tensions we explore in the book is the extent to which while um, these institutions are you know, somewhat free, they're not totally free um, from, from the constraints that they're, they're pushing back against constantly. No, and I think that dynamic is really clear throughout. It's a sort of dance that they're doing. Um, Josh, you mentioned this, and it's part of chapter two, but let me just ask you it a with a little bit more detail. So there was a road not taken, and it would have been to have looked at existing institutions, places like Baylor or Notre Dame. Uh, when you use the word infiltrate, you don't actually mean infiltrate in a sort of a CIA type way, because the idea is that there is some sort of parity between the goals of the institution and the uh, the new group. So in particular, why not Baylor? Why not Notre Dame? They, they had the academic prestige. They have um, uh, different versions of Christian approaches, but but why not? Why not why not that way? Why not infiltrate? Why create these new law schools? Yeah, no, and this this was a really uh, kind of fun part of the, the the project to kind of learn about because this was also something that a lot of our interviewees would bring up. Would they would they would bring up Pepperdine or Baylor or Notre Dame to say, you know, if you're interested in in religious lawyering, are you also looking at these institutions? Um, and so you there's this this recognition of there being a similarity, right? In in kind of to some degree in the founding missions of the schools that we're primarily looking at and, and other older uh, religious law schools. But the, there's a, the short version of the story of uh, why there's this road not taken. Why don't they try to get faculty um, into these law schools is there's a couple things. One of them is if we look at the founders of the law school. So if we look at Pat Robertson and, and uh, Jerry Falwell in particular here um, is to think of the other institutions that these leading figures in the Christian right have created. And then to also think about how they relate to other actors within the, the Christian right. So again, other potential allies. And there's a, a pattern here of kind of mistrust of your ostensible allies, and also a, a desire to exercise the most control possible over the institutions that you create. So 
instead of there being a lot of collaboration, there's a lot of uh, a tradition here of kind of going at it on your own, right? Establishing your own entities. And then if we look at uh, another layer in there too, is this kind of standing mistrust in the Christian right uh, that's, that's diminished significantly over time, but traditional divisions between Protestants and Catholics, right? And so is Notre Dame really a place that you want to go to if you're an evangelical, right? Is this going to be the institution for you? But then again, you could, you could turn to a place like Pepperdine or to, to Baylor. Um, another larger part of the story here that explains the, the division is a, a larger kind of cultural one, an institutional story out of kind of the, the roots of the Christian right. And so we see over the course of the 20th century, this division between, uh, particularly between white evangelical Protestants and established institutions. And you can see this particularly with established institutions of higher learning, right? There's a mistrust of established colleges and universities. And so there's a tradition of, again, creating your own. And we see this really over the course of the 20th century uh, with the creation of new standalone Christian conservative colleges and universities. And so there's a tradition to build off there in terms of creating law schools. And so again, we can see that Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell had initially created their own universities in Regent University, previously named Christian Broadcasting Network University, and Liberty University, right? So these are kind of natural extensions or additions to those institutions. Um, and then lastly, having done you know, interviews with, with people at Notre Dame and, and done other research on Notre Dame and, and Baylor, there's a definite connection between, say, Baylor and Notre Dame. Um, you can watch kind of faculty and speakers go back and forth between those established institutions. But then there's also a recognized division between them as established kind of flagship universities for religious denominations and the groups that we're looking at with Regent uh, Liberty and Ave Maria. And so this kind of division between the older standing institution and what they're intending to do and these new upstart kind of institutions. Amanda, did you want to get in? Yeah, and I'll just add, you know, something that came through in our interviews as well is when we interviewed students at Ave Maria School of Law. So Ave Maria, founded by Tom Monahan, you might recognize him as the Domino's Pizza guy. Some of the headlines when he went to go found Ave Maria School of Law was ex-pizza magnet builds law school for God. Um, so that gives you a sense of you know, his mission and where he was at. But he founds Ave Maria in, originally in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And one of the reasons he founds uh, Ave Maria is because he believes, he surveys the landscape and says, there are dozens of you know, quote-unquote Catholic law schools out there, but not one of them is truly Catholic and truly conservative. And some of the students we interviewed at, at, at Ave Maria um, echoed this language and said, you know, Notre Dame's not a real Catholic law school. And part of the reason that um, perception exists is because the law school, while very conservative, as our interviews showed, and we can look here to Amy Coney Barrett, who's a product of that law school faculty and now a Supreme Court justice, um, while very conservative in the law school, Notre Dame Law School is housed in a broader university that, by and large, has 
quote unquote, given way um, to the secular culture wars. So they allow pro-choice speakers onto campus. They have an LGBTQ club. Um, These kinds of cultural elements within the broader university made it such that these founding patrons thought you could not have a real Catholic law school in this secularized, um, liberal, broader environment. And and you also note that both at Notre Dame and at Baylor, universities want to be more part of the the academic mainstream such that they are not willing to exclude certain elements of education, for example, having pluralist views on campus that would take them out of that. Um, And I thought I I found that very interesting. You know, it's funny, as I was reading about the patrons uh, who are all these these, uh, familiar characters, they're all male, I, I was wondering a little bit about gender in terms of the faculty, students, administrators, and founders. I mean, you know, sometimes you you describe them as dynamic men, like big personalities, people who want to create their own institutions. And, and I'm wondering if you if you walked away with any sort of sense of the gender of gender driving any of the dynamics and the choices about what kinds of capital to be putting in different places. Well, one way to, to think about this is so there are definitely women who are faculty members and women who are administrators at these law schools, right? And uh, this is something that that I think the schools are quick to show, right? That as kind of a, a demonstration of diversity, right? And uh, a demonstration of a way to push back against ideas that, you know, that these are just white men making institutions to, to forward kind of white men ends. Um, and so you can definitely find women faculty and women administrators uh, at these schools. Um, but that's also true of the broader Christian right, right? And, and in conservatism, generally, is you find women leaders uh, in these organizations. You also, though, I'd, you know, the ones that are kind of popping to mind right away have specific focuses also on, say, family law, right? And so you can begin to think of a kind of a gendered component going in there, uh, and of like, oh, the the place that that women faculty might you know be found is is around domains that we might think of as being traditionally female domains here, and, and thus thus family law. Uh, but it's also uh, family law is really central to the Christian right and the Christian conservative legal movement, right? Because this gets into issues of marriage and adoption and and so forth. No, thanks. It's 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 so complicated, and you're right. It does map onto these these wider tendencies within Christian and conservative. Well, maybe not conservative movements, but certainly in Christian movements. Um, the the sort of middle of the book, chapters four through seven, are using the four forms of capital that you've laid out: human, social, cultural, and intellectual, to try to assess the actual and the potential capital outputs for each institution as support structures uh, for these conservative um, uh, legal movements. So, Amanda, would 
You take us through chapters four and five. Um, how did human capital, how did the lawyers and legal professionals actually impact change? You know, how were they recruited and trained? Did they did they ultimately contribute to the goals of the movement? And for social and and cultural capital, which you guys call sort of credibility capital, did they get the cultural recognition and prestige that they wanted? What happened to these scholars? And were you surprised by what you, but why, but what, by what you found there? Yeah. So I, I'll start with human capital. I mean, if we're thinking about this from the perspective of support structure theory, uh, one of the ways that you change the law or change the legal profession is to change the lawyers. This is, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, the the Frankfurter adage, but we didn't say exactly what that was. Felix Frankfurter, who was a former Supreme Court justice, famously said, in the last analysis, the law is what the lawyers are, and the law and the lawyers are what the law schools make them. And that, in short, is the the animating theory of our book. But you you need... um, the, to shape first and foremost, recruit and shape human capital. Um, so how do you do that? As I mentioned, with all the challenges that come with a brand new law school, how do you recruit faculty, what we call mission-driven faculty and mission-driven students? And this is a term that, again, came out of our interviews. We heard it over and over again, um, this term mission student in particular. And it was a way of talking about the right kinds of students. You need a critical mass of students committed to the mission of these law schools who are Christian, who are conservative, who are um, in some ways culture warriors, who are coming to these law schools so that they can be trained and then be foot soldiers in the movement. So how do you recruit a critical mass of mission students and mission faculty? And chapter four um, explores that and explores the tensions that go along with trying to be a a ABA accredited law school that's teaching all the subjects of law and making sure that its uh, graduates are ready to pass the bar exam while also doing this important um, mission work, right? Training and socializing these future uh, leaders of the Christian conservative legal movement. Um, and so one of the more interesting findings from, from chapter four is you know how how these law schools go about doing this and what their curriculum looks like and what Josh and I found was you know these aren't just nominally christian culturally conservative places they are deeply integrating uh, uh, the bible and christian biblical principles into every class not just your family law as Josh Josh mentioned or your class on constitutional law where you may expect to see it but you know, we obtained some detailed course notes um, from these classes, and they're quoting the Bible. Um, as there, we have one interviewee who says, "You know, you're free to disagree with what I believe, but you have to have your casebook open and your codebook open and the Bible open in class while you're disagreeing with me." And so there really is. Um, we established that they are providing a unique curriculum to train future lawyers. Um, And of course, then the question is, well, when they graduate, what are they passing the bar exam? Are they licensed? And we examine how each of these institutions has struggled with bar passage over time, in part because the administration was giving too much weight to the kind of culture war aspects of the 
of the law school while neglecting the law school as kind of a full service law school and how each school has had to recalibrate over time, provide more legal and lawyering skills training so that their students, um, their graduates actually do go out and pass the bar. Um, and one of the things we find is there, it's a it's a small sample of graduates. These are relatively new institutions. Um, uh, Liberty is the latest in the in the creation series. They're created between 1986, which is the earliest regent, um, up through 2004, which is Liberty Law. And so we're not talking about many generations of graduates here to to rely on, but the graduates that they have placed are disproportionately going in to government, public interest law, and the legal academy. And that I think really is a critical finding. That's what we would expect if these law schools were self-consciously trying to be support structures for the Christian right. We'd expect them to place graduates in those critical positions where they could have access to levers of power, where they could actually affect policy change. And so that's one of the primary findings early on um, from chapter four. They're not producing at the level of Notre Dame and Baylor in terms of their overall um, prestige of their alumni. But when they do place uh, alumni, they're going into these support structure critical positions. And then chapter five, as you mentioned, um, is about social capital, which are networks, and cultural capital, which is the ability for the broader public to take your ideas seriously. Um, And we combine those under the phrase credibility capital. And there's a great quote at the beginning of chapter five. We quote a... um, Uh, one of the uh, administrators at Blackstone Legal Fellowship when we went to do interviews there, who says, you know, credibility is important to us. We don't want to feed into the crazy Christian stigma. We don't want our graduates going out there and shouting God's law over man's law, right? Because he said, that's not who we are. We're more strategic than that. And so the question for this movement becomes, how do graduates of these institutions, which by and large have been portrayed in the media as non-serious, as crazy Christian, as you know, pet projects of these Christian right patrons, how do they go out and be taken seriously uh, enough within the legal profession to really affect change within the legal profession? And we use a variety of metrics to look at this, but one of the more interesting ones is, is the mainstream conservative legal movement folks who are deeply integrated into the federal society network, do they take these uh, these people seriously? Do they take the faculty at these law schools seriously? Are these folks integrated into the mainstream? Are they getting invited to speak at federal society conferences? Are they thought leaders in the conservative legal movement? And by and large, we find that they're not, that these folks are still fairly marginalized within the conservative legal movement. Um, Folks like Amy Barrett, Amy Coney Barrett, notwithstanding, because she comes from Notre Dame, not from Regent Liberty and Ave Maria. Um, Josh, you handled, or I guess you guys wrote this all together, but you took the lead on chapters six and seven, which are on intellectual capital, which is um, preaching to convert or to the converted. And then chapter seven, which is that tip of the iceberg, uh, as Amanda put it earlier, that is, is sticking out that everybody sees, which is what actually happens in the courtroom. Are these people the counsel of record? 
Are they submitting the friend of the court briefs? Are judges using any of this research and their opinions? So can you take us through a little bit on on the intellectual capital piece and also what finally happens at this tip of the iceberg? Sure. Um, so one of the things that's that's kind of unique and important to recognize about law schools as support structures for legal movements are that you know law schools have legal faculty. And you know what do we all do as faculty? We publish, right? That's how we we try to move conversations forward. That's how we try to to exert influence in various ways. And then this gets back to the idea of these law schools are trying to both create lawyers, but also change the broader legal culture, right? Change the conversation that's going on. And so, legal scholarship is is a really good place to look at. You know, are they producing this valuable intellectual capital that movements can mobilize? Right? And the kind of a, a simple way of breaking this down is there are a few leading questions in chapter six. So like one is basically, are they publishing? If so, where and who's citing them, if anybody's citing them? And then not only are they, so that's a kind of a, are you entering the academic marketplace question? Um, and, and are people listening to you? The second one then is, all right, if you are entering the academic marketplace, are you inserting what we call mission-driven or mission-related scholarship into that conversation, right? So are you publishing law review journals that any law professor at any law school would be publishing, or are you publishing uh, scholarship that has a uniquely or distinctly religious element to it, right? And then again, if you are where are you publishing that? Who's citing it? Then we also looked at the in-house journals uh, as venues, right? Are you using these in-house journals to pursue the religious mission? Again, if you know, uh, if so, who's citing these things? And then also, are they sites of collaboration? Are these journals places where faculty at the different law schools can collaborate with each other to create kind of a unified movement? Right? And we, we look at all these things and then we compare uh, production levels to a sample of traditional law schools. And then we also compare within the law schools that we're specifically focusing on here. And the very short version of the takeaway is that we are finding that, yes, they are the faculty at these schools are producing scholarship. They're producing them at, at lower rates, say, than our uh, mainstream comparisons, but they're still definitely engaged in scholarship. And second, you know, are they engaged in mission-related scholarship? Yes, we find that as well. Um, but we're going to start to get into differentiation here, too, of, of kind of which schools are producing more and which ones are producing less. And then, relatedly, right, in-house journals, yes, they're producing mission-related scholarship. So, yes, they're entering the academic marketplace. But then we, and yes, they're entering that marketplace with religious ideas, kind of their mission-related ideas here to try to change the legal conversation. Where things start unraveling a bit is, okay, who's engaging with them? And we, we measure that by looking at citation rates and where these citation rates occur and, and kind of where they're placing their, their scholarship. And we overwhelmingly find that while they're producing this work and putting it out there, it's in lower-ranked journals, and it's not being heavily cited. And when it is being cited, it's being cited by similarly low-ranking journals. 
And so you can see that they're having this conversation, but the conversation is largely taking place at the margins of, of the legal academic, the larger legal academic conversation. And then what was also, I think, a really interesting finding was that looking at the in-house journals, you see that the in-house journals, instead of being sites of collaboration to build a collective intellectual movement here, they're not being used for collaboration. The in-house journals really are in-house. These are conversations. Basically, if you're at Liberty, you publish in the Liberty journals. If you're at Ave, you publish at the Ave journals, and same with Regent. And so there's very little conversation going on between these institutions through these academic kind of venues. And that, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, speculating as to why part of this could be, you know, going back to, to our conversations earlier about the original divisions between the founders of these schools and the tensions that still exist between, between the various schools. Um, and so that's a, another way of seeing that, you know, they're engaging in the work, but it's happening at the margins and they're hobbling uh, themselves in various ways. And then if we pivot to, to chapter seven, we see a, a similar trend in terms of kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? Who's, who's active in litigation? Um, and really, this is where we start to see uh, a kind of a dramatic creation of tiers within the schools or the organizations that we're looking at, where you essentially find that Blackstone has really kind of robust rates of, of participation or Blackstone affiliated faculty have robust rates of participation with litigation. And then Regent and, and Ave come in there at kind of a mid-level, and then there's a significant drop-off with Liberty. Um, and so we're seeing again that they're trying to uh, access courts, just like they're trying to access the academic market, uh, marketplace of ideas. But, and they're having some success at it, but it's maybe not at the levels of success that uh, the founders would hope for, right? Amanda, did you want to comment on that too? Yeah, I just wanted to jump in. And, and one other interesting finding about chapter seven was, um, so these faculty actually participate as amici curi, friends of the court, um, at higher levels than we estimate because we don't have good data across the legal profession about how often faculty, full-time faculty at law schools are participating in front of the court briefs. But um, from two experts who run the Center for the Study of Legal Professions at, at UC Irvine, um, these faculty actually appear to be participating at much higher rates in front of the court briefs, amicus briefs, than uh, their full-time co uh, counterparts at other law schools. And when you think about, again, if they are support structure institutions, self-consciously designed to go, go out there and, and change the conversation, then that engagement is, is, is further evidence that regardless of their success, um, they are uh, participating in, and trying to access um, let these uh, these conversations at higher levels than than their counterparts are at other mainstream law schools. 
No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So when you, when you get to the end, and actually I saw on Twitter yesterday, somebody was asking, what's a really good example of a conclusion for a book? Because most of them are terrible. Most of us get to the end and we're just out of steam. And I actually thought about your conclusion, which is called the Polonius standard and other measures of success. Um, asking whether these groups are, are to their own self being true. Uh, and I thought of yours because this is actually not the usual conclusion. You do you do a lot more than simply restating the findings of each chapter. You really are reflecting on what this Christian conservative legal movement case study tells us about how we can conceive of and and think about strategic options available to those who are are trying to affect law and how they use these support structures. So without repeating everything in the conclusion, because it it's it's really detailed, ultimately, how did you come to feel about your model, about how the pyramid helped assess the success of the movements and what it told you in a more nuanced way? Um, and also the extent to which you could see that model being employed to understand the dynamics of, of other cases of conservative and or Christian right organization. So um, one way, uh, and by the way, thank you very much for the, the, the compliment there about the conclusion. Um, so a, a few big things that I think come out here from having having worked on this for so long. One is the extent to which context matters, like the, the environment in which institutions and so forth are situated in really matter, right? Like this was one of the points that Amanda brought up earlier of, and, and one of the things I think is a, a valuable takeaway from the book is, all right, if we're thinking about creating support structure institutions, we have these different strategies that are available to you, right? In terms of supplemental and parallel alternative and so forth. And while on their face, it looks like creating your own institution will give you a lot of what you want. It'll give you a lot of kind of control. Um, you're still embedded in a larger context that's going to affect how effective that institution is. And so this is one of the ways that we understand kind of the, the success of Blackstone is that the Blackstone Legal Fellowship and Alliance Defending Freedom, of which it's a part, are really aware of how the legal political game works. And so they drive to fit within those parameters and thus have a lot of ways to evaluate their, their success, right? Um, versus the law schools are trying to break away and kind of create their own world. And so that can inhibit their ability to kind of meet their ends, um, but 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 also they you know they exist within and they come to recognize over the course of their uh, of their being around how much they need to adhere to what the American Bar Foundation sets up and what the legal marketplace wants and demands of them and so they and this is where we can start to pivot to this idea of the the Polonius standard right is is this idea of okay how do we evaluate success of these movements and there's essentially two ways you can evaluate it. One is an external one and one's an internal measure of success. So the external one would be, you know, are you producing these forms of capital? Are they being consumed in the marketplaces that you want them to be consumed in? And are you having effects 
at the, you know, at the above the waterline space of, are you influencing court outcomes, right? And as we've kind of covered a little bit there, we find mixed reviews of success there. It's not a, a total failure by any means, um, but it's not an overwhelming success. It's something that kind of exists in between. But then if we pivot and we consider, consider internal measures of success, right? And this is what gets us to this idea of to thy own self be true. We can see these law schools and training programs as, as incredibly successful, right? Even though they exist within these contexts, they have to adhere to what the legal marketplace demands and what the American, uh, American Bar Foundation requires and so forth and accreditation requires. They have been well attuned to preserving what makes, preserving their, their founding missions, right? And, and making sure they don't go down the road that they see Notre Dame and Baylor and others and Georgetown having gone down in the past of having started off as religious institutions and becoming essentially secular ones in their views. And then another way to think about them kind of internally is this idea of what space do they occupy within the Christian right and within social conservatism, right? And they stand as these exemplars of resistance, of these places that have entered the legal academic world and have remained true to their founding missions. And they've created experts that when political conditions change, right, can be tapped by conservative political actors or, or the conservative legal movement. And so in those internal measures, they're actually kind of wildly successful institutions. I, I want to ask you a question about Howard University, because it's it's in the book as as sort of an exemplar of creating a parallel institution that will create support structures because something else doesn't exist and you and you lay it out there as very very different so racial exclusion from other law schools made it even more imperative there was no Notre Dame that could have been an alternative but i i guess my question is it does howard come up in the um, interviews that you did or in the mission statements that you were reviewing or more formal, I guess maybe not the mission statements, but the more formal documents, do they have this in mind? Are they thinking about the civil rights movement and the ability of um, uh, the civil rights strategy by by Houston, uh, by Charles Hamilton Houston uh, to, to get those um, uh, changes to the law, changes and decisions in the court. Are they are they actively thinking about that, or is that something you're thinking about? So, the it's this, this, is, a, this is an interesting question, right? It's because, and I would say that the kind of the quick answer is no. I don't actually recall Howard ever being brought up um, by anybody at these institutions. But at the same time, there are all these examples of you know, major players in these institutions being very good studies or students of progressive movements that came before them, right? And kind of one kind of quick way of understanding this is, you know, the, as I said before, a Pat Robertson's public interest legal organization is the ACLJ. You know, it's not an accident that it's, you know, very similar in its letters to the ACLU. Yeah, <laughs> I, la- I laughed. 
when I read that, yeah. Yeah, you just need to erase a little bit of the U and hey, you got a J, right? And so, um, so there's definitely evidence of them being very good students of progressive movements, but Howard never, never came up. Um, mm-hmm. Amanda, do you, do you remember if Howard ever came up anywhere? No, I mean, the only thing I would add here is I'm contrasting my interviews with the Christian right actors, um, with my interviews with Federal Society founding members. And to the founding generation of the Federal Society, they're self-consciously modeling their organization on what Steve Tellis calls the liberal legal network, right? The network of lawyers in law schools and public interest law firms that effectively revolutionized law um, and brought ushered in the changes that we now know from the New Deal and the rights revolution. And um, so in contrast to that very self-conscious awareness that they were modeling the secular conservative legal movement um, after um, the, the rights revolution, the liberal legal network, um, the folks that we talked to uh, in these interviews um, really emphasized that their role was to correct the wrong turn legal education had taken when it sort of separated itself from the natural law, from Christian foundations, um, and Harvard Law School, the the Socratic method. This, in their opinion, is where legal education and law took a wrong turn. And so if there's any inspiration, it's to sort of try to, uh, to, to circle back to those before times and to try to reground law, legal culture, and legal education in the Bible and in Christian principles. Yeah, that's it, I, I was I was jotting down uh, similar notes here of like if you think about the what they are thinking of their predecessor institutions, there and and kind of thinking about what comes before. You know, we have this evidence of their of the progressive movement kind of laying out strategies that they're paying attention to and kind of perfecting or, or changing. But then there are these kind of cultural predecessors, and there's two waves of those, right? There's the, they would always, like I said, reference Baylor and Notre Dame and Pepperdine and Georgetown as being these original kind of religiously minded law schools that variously went astray, right? But then, as Amanda was just saying, there's also a much older idea of predecessor institution that they're trying to return to. And here's where they'll talk about you know, institutions like Princeton. And in Princeton's original founding, being a religious university, right? So we're going back hundreds of years here, as opposed to you know some number of decades, right? Well, uh, all all of the pre-revolutionary. Sorry to interrupt you, Josh, but like all of the pre-revolutionary war universities in the United States, and there's been some really excellent historical uh, research done on this. They all had uh, <laughs> a, a version of a of a religious of a religious um, mission. And, and yeah. it was and it was serious and real, and they may have turned into Yale, but that's not the Yale that we know today. Is not the Yale that it started with. Um, there's a little bit of difference with the land grant institutions, but but nevertheless, that I mean, they're right about that. That is where they started. Yeah, and that's where they see kind of the fall, right? There's there's kind of different points in time where you can kind of understand the fall here, but. But one of them is exactly what you're saying. They say, hey, look at the original institutions we had in this country. They were religious in orientation. And thus, the institutions that extend out in the political and legal world have this religious, religious grounding. And that's what we need to return to. Right? And so there's these various kind of 
predecessors that they can point to for inspiration and also as a way of understanding what they want to get back to. Amanda, I wanted to give you a chance on the conclusion for some of your takeaways uh, or feelings about about the work, about uh, what was accomplished, um, what was left on the table, um, and and also then I'd like to hear about what your new research is is on right now. Sure. So I think as I'm reflecting on the project, and I was going back through the book, it's always surprising to me to go back to something I've written and to reread and to reconstruct the process that it's been such a such a long process and there's been uh, so much uh, data collection involved thanks to a, a generous grant by the National Science Foundation. But one of the things that struck me this time reading it uh, was this idea of um, access. So, so often we researchers talk about how we access uh, data sources, how we get access to institutions and actors. And our goal really was not just to tell a story we could tell from news articles or publicly available documents, but to really get access to these institutions, to um, the students, to the faculty, to the alumni, and um, tell a story, um, get a sense of how they understand their own uh, mission and their own place within this movement. And, and that was not always easy. Um, in some places, and, and Josh and I could tell you stories upon stories, but um, you know, we uh, were able, we were trying to get interviews at Regent, for example. And this is a place that has received probably the most negative press um, because of the Monica Goodling scandal, scandal during the George W. Bush administration. She was a high-profile Regent grad who was um, politically firing U.S. attorneys and um, she came under fire from Congress and it came out that her graduating class from Regent, you know, fewer than half of them had passed the bar exam. And this reflected really poorly on Regent and John Stewart, you know, uh, did a bit on them. And so Regent really is self-conscious about how it's viewed um, by the outside world. And it's often lamented, you know, that we have a quote from the dean who said, I wish people could see the real Regent law. And as we say in the book, you know, seeing the real Regent law isn't as easy as it sounds, because we had tried to access campus and um, had dozens of interviews set up with faculty who were willing to talk to with us. But then the administration caught wind that we were coming. They gave us a cease and desist. We were told in no uncertain terms we could not come to campus. Um, so it wasn't until we secured an interview with Herb Titus, who factors prominently in the book, who was fired by Pat Robertson in a very controversial, high-profile firing. Um, it wasn't until we said we were coming to meet with Herb Titus uh, that we were able to meet with a select number of faculty at Regent. So, so much of the story of this book is finding creative ways to get access to what we couldn't get access to because of the resistance on the part of our interview subjects. Um, and so it, it, there's a story here about the fieldwork and about the access and about the research process as well that I... Um, that I, I think is really interesting. And also I'm, I'm pretty proud of the creative ways um, we found to get access to, to the things that we needed to write the book. Amanda, I don't want to interrupt you, but I, I do want to say as a reader that those interviews are magnificent. I mean, this is such an interesting book because it, it has so many facets. and the But those, those interviews 
weave throughout the narrative and they really bring to life what it is these people think they're doing, how they think about what they're doing, and also the way that you get at the what they're actually learning, the syllabuses, the notes that are taken. It's it it, it was it was clear reading it that there had to be a lot to uh, behind getting those. And um, yeah, I wish we had another podcast to to devote to that. But I do want to know what each of you are doing um, going forward and. Um, whether it's connected to this or, or not. Um, Josh, you want to go first? Sure. Um, and thanks again, by the way, for the, the compliments about the book. Um, so I, I kind of have uh, two things. And one directly grows out of this, and the other one is a little bit more removed. One of them is I'm, I'm looking at starting a new project with uh, Allison Gash, who's at the University of Oregon, about uh, family law. And family law is a venue where we see um, kind of new kind of cultural war fights playing out, but in a, a low profile way. And then the, the other thing that I'm interested in, again, kind of stemming out of my, my longer interest in conservatism is uh, I have a larger project that I'm looking at launching on um, the cultivation and creation of white ethnic identity in the 1970s and 80s, and how that uh, plays into the creation of modern American conservatism. They both sound great. If you finish them as books, you got to come back. Amanda, <laughs> what do you what do you have on the on the front and back burners? Yeah, Susan, thank you for asking. So, um, I'm actually now circling back to a project I started, which which was part of the dissertation research on the Federal Society. Uh, it was a chapter that didn't make it into the book, but then was peeled off as my very first law review article at Denver University Law Review. Uh, interestingly enough, Josh, uh, the Denver connection. Um, and it's called uh, Helping Ideas Have Consequences, the Political and, and Intellectual Investment in the Unitary Executive Theory. So I wrote this law review article about how members of the fledgling Federalist Society really helped nurture and develop the unitary executive theory into what it became during the George W. Bush administration. And then I go through how it was variously deployed to defend expansions of the imperial presidency throughout that time. And I, I, I've consistently in my teaching been interested in this question of the imperial presidency and the role that government lawyers have played in enabling uh, the growth of executive power and the imperial presidency over time. And I'm finally at a point now where I'm coming back to it. So I've got one piece under review on the Office of Legal Counsel. Um, but the broader book project uh, uh, is titled Wicked Men, How Lawyers Built the Imperial Presidency. So it'll be a more systematic look at the role of government lawyers in enabling the imperial presidency. I should just say that it's also like talking about what we're doing next. Because Amanda and I have been so involved in this project for so long, it seems so strange like, to, to have these <laughs> other things out ahead. Um, it takes, look, it takes a long time to write a great book. And um, uh, so, yeah, you said it's been with you for eight years and then you've got to get it to press. And and it's really hard to reach your audiences in a pandemic. But I found the book so engaging and hope others will as well. The book is separate but faithful. The Christian Rights Radical Struggle to Transform Law and Legal Culture, published by Oxford University Press in 2020, written by Amanda Hollis Brusky and Joshua C. Wilson. Thank you both for joining New Books in Political Science.